Morning. It's good to see you all. Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And today we are looking at verses 21 through 26. And we're learning today, what does Jesus think about our anger? What does Jesus think about our anger? I know a few things about anger. You take all that I learned as a child in regard to anger, you could call me an expert at expressing anger. I was very good at it as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a pastor. Last week in the office, anger is one of those things that we have to learn to harness and bring under the submission of Christ. And that's not easy. A lot of things to be mad about today, isn't there? As we look at the circumstances in the world, in our society, uh, the various ways that uh, um, uh, things are going in our culture, in our communities, man, it's pretty easy to get worked up, get mad at somebody. Often it's the government. Sometimes it's a particular group of people. And we get mad and we let people know we're mad. Jesus deals with our anger here. What does Jesus think of our anger? Prior to our passage today, Jesus has spoken in regard to the internal righteousness of a Christian or of a kingdom citizen uh, in positive ways. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he gives some positive affirmation, some positive thing that they receive. He's speaking of us as who we are not merely to become, but who we are because of Christ. However, beginning here in verse 21, this positive view of kingdom citizens is replaced by Jesus stating the same thing negatively. Blessed are you. And now he is saying, here's what you are not. Here's what you do not practice as a way of life. He formats his argument, you see, uh, with the statement, you have heard it said, but I say. So this is the format over the next several passages that we will look at. He said, you've heard it said, but I say. A lot of times people will look at this and say, well, he's contrasting or he's dispensing with the law. No, he's not. Um, it's important to understand that he's not disposing of the Old Testament law, but in fact, 
in many instances through this text, uh, he is uh, stating the law and then illuminating it by bringing out deeper aspects of what it means to not murder, not lust, not divorce, breaking your oaths, exacting vengeance, and not loving your enemies. He's letting us know what the law means and what the law says. Anger is a sin that we often excuse in ourselves and in others sometimes. Every once in a while, rarely, when we see it in others. For Christians, our anger is often directed at the world around us for its misadventures in immorality and injustice. However, anger is also directed at those we love and probably more often directed at those we love. Most often, anger originates in one place and is dispensed in another place. Perhaps you have a bad day at work. Maybe your boss yells at you. Maybe you're frustrated because something happens over and over and over again. And your boss keeps doing the same thing to try to fix it. You know how to do it better. If they would just let you. It's usually the kids and the wife that gets the steam that has been stored up through the day, isn't it? Steam. It's a euphemism, okay? Wow, he's really steamed. I mean, that's what we do with our anger. We turn it into euphemisms, some kind of little saying. Boy, he's steamed. I mean, even in the cartoons, we know how that's illustrated, don't we? Somebody's face turns red and smoke comes out their ears. It's a lot of euphemisms. I, I looked up some southern euphemisms. You, you, uh, you, you, you got to be careful with those. <laughs> I meant to look up some of the origins of some of these too you ever just use this as an excuse you know you come home you kind of vent or something with the kids or the wife or something like that and your wife goes hey what's going on i'm just cranky like it's you know it's just passing i'm just cranky you know or maybe we use this one well i really lost my temper today You know, I have a temper. I don't know where it is. I mean, we just kind of just kind of paint over it a little bit. 
right? How about this one? Fly off the handle. Man, he really flew off the handle. Wait, he can fly? What was he doing on a handle? You know, I mean, you kind of think about some of these things. I imagine that one maybe comes from having a pan, your wife has it, and she swung it and the pot flew off the handle. I don't know. I, I don't know. I was trying to imagine what does this mean? Matter than a wet hen? Or this one that I used to get, go sit in the truck. <laughs> okay, dad's mad now. I got to go sit in the truck. I did something silly or stupid or something, and now I got to go sit in the truck. Boy, I'm going to hear it. We take anger and we whitewash it sometimes. Some of these euphemisms are strange and honestly humorous, but Jesus calls our anger unrighteous before we shake off our anger is harmless I think it's important that we should take a look and see what does Jesus think concerning our anger let me give you three parts first is correction for the sake of the kingdom that's what he does right there in that First verse of our passage, verse 21. Correction for the sake of kingdom citizens. Secondly, I want us to look at three aspects of murder to wage war against. Three aspects of murder to wage war against. And then lastly, I want us to look at the two Illustrations that Jesus gives of reconciliation. Reconciliation. To be reconciled. To forgive. Or to seek forgiveness. So first of all, let's look at the correction that Jesus gives for the sake of kingdom citizens. Verse 21, he says, You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Notice Jesus' words. You have heard it said. In a sparring match with Satan and in other instances, Jesus is very specific when he says this. It is written. But he doesn't speak of that it is written. Even though you shall not murder is written in the law. He's pointing to a particular aspect of what goes on in uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees as it relates to the law. Notice he says that. You have heard it said. Jesus is pushing back, if you will. We're going to find some thoughts here that some people will call uh, contradictions of the law, and they're not. He's certainly contrasting what tradition says, what the scribes and Pharisees have said, against what he says. And that is the nuances and the, uh, the, the depth 
of what the law means. And how knowing that and how, how that brings us to a place of, uh, of our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, that's important. Sometimes you just got to go with it, you know. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not going to happen. Our righteousness, of course, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We have this, but I want you to see that he's speaking of the actions of our heart and life. What we think and believe in ourselves. Because what you think and what you are inside is what manifests itself on the outside. And so Jesus isn't pushing back against the law, but against tradition that distorts and disfigures the law. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Some Jewish instruction pointed to if you carry anything heavier than a fig, you would be breaking the law of God on the Sabbath. These pushers of tradition are the scribes and the Pharisees, and our righteousness must exceed theirs to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Let me translate that into a measure of righteousness. To the scribes and Pharisees, righteousness meant that they had not committed murder. Okay? Killed anybody? No, you're righteous. Sometimes that's the kind of the way we judge things, you know. We may even say that. I've heard that testimony from people when witnessing to them. You, you think you'll go to heaven? Yeah, I hadn't killed anybody. Or they measure themselves against some other person who is a Christian or supposed to be a Christian or they see as a Christian. I don't do the things they do. So... The scribes and Pharisees would say, I haven't committed murder. But they had some brothers they hated. Matter of fact, they hated Jesus. So much that they murdered him. We can kind of see the attitude of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, there Jesus is, uh, gives us a scene, if you will, of a Pharisee and a tax collector. In verse 18, he told a parable. It says, verse 9, chapter 18, Luke, Luke 18, 9, because I think I said it wrong. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others 
with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pharisee speaks of external aspects of birth and avoidance and religious practices, whereas the tax collector brings nothing but sin and humility and repentance to the altar. Jesus is correcting what has been said with I say to you. And that is measured against verse 20 unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Theirs was external. The righteousness of those who are kingdom citizens is internal righteousness brought about by Jesus Christ. He's correcting for the kingdom citizen for the sake of kingdom citizens so that we will not measure with the same measure as the Pharisees and the world. But we will measure instead with the measure of the word of God where he calls us to obey. So he's helping us to see don't just Walk in following rules, but be changed within you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He transforms us. He continues his instruction by helping us to see this. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And there's more to that. Listen to what he says. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So there's judgment. There's consequence to being a murderer. Jesus continues in his correction and his instruction by pointing out three aspects of murder to wage war against. The first is anger. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The second are insults. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The last denunciation. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire or Gehenna. We see these three aspects of murder that we are to wage war against. And they have three corresponding judgments. The first, anger with your brother, is judgment. 
the second uh, insulting your brother, uh, the council or the Sanhedrin. You're going to have to go before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to judge what punishment you should get. And, and the third, what does it say? It says, if you call your brother a fool, you're liable to judgment in hell. Now, it's important for us to know that Jesus is not uh, lining up things and saying, here's the severity of these different sins. He's responding back to what has been said. You have heard it said. Uh, you, ha you have heard it said you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. If you don't murder, no judgment. But if you're angry, there's judgment. If you insult, there's judgment. If there's denunciation, there's judgment. The point of what Jesus is saying is that you're going to be judged not merely if you murder, but also in these ways that you put on display anger that is unrighteous. To sum it up, Jesus is saying, you can be murder-free and still enter into judgment. Most often, we assume our anger is righteous anger when usually it's sinful. Isn't that true? Is it just me that thinks that I have righteous anger? That most of my anger is just and deserved? Is it just me that thinks that I am the measure of righteous indignation? Isn't it true that most of us, when we're angry, justify our anger? Well, he did this, or she did that, or she said that. Or did you see how she looked at me? Usually petty, right? Sometimes serious. But we need to understand that these three aspects of anger, they're carrying something. They're, uh, we, we need to, to, to see something. I mean, there's, uh, we see where it says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus called people fools. You realize that, right? I mean, in, in Matthew 23, he referred to the, to the Pharisees as blind Fools. Scripture even teaches us to recognize this truth. Psalm 14.1, what does it say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> That's instruction for us to recognize. Somebody says there's no God. It's a fool.
What Jesus did not practice is the deliberate belittling of someone because of animosity and hatred in his own heart. That's what Jesus is getting to. And saying that someone is a fool and you have animosity and hatred toward that person in your own heart is going against the way Jesus uses those words. So I want us to understand that he's laying out for us. He's not just giving us severities of sin. He's telling us that in your anger, you can sin and there be judgment attached to it. If you're living your life in that pattern, I want you to know there's no place for you in the kingdom of God. That's what he says. You say, well, it's kind of harsh, Rick. Well, you know what? People have gotten angry with me because I've said things like that. They're still mad at me, by the way. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, it says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so Jesus is making sure that we understand. If you're living a life of anger, it's quite possible that you have no place in the kingdom of God. I hadn't murdered anybody. No, but you hate your brother. And you will not forgive. And forgiveness is a mark of a genuine believer. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives some instruction that I think we should heed at this time goes right along with what's being said here. He's laying out characteristics, if you will, of those who have the new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, They are putting off the old self, and they are putting on the new self. And part of that is be angry, verse 26, Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry. Present passive imperative. Imperative, what is that? That's a command. But there's passive action going on there. Be angry. He's not commanding us to be angry. He's recognizing something. That things are going to happen that are going to make you angry. And when that happens, when you get mad about something... Do not sin. That's what comes next. Be angry and do not sin. That is present active imperative. That's a command. Don't sin. Of course that's a command. Be angry. Do not sin. He gives us instruction here and it helps us to see uh, what we need to do. How do we do that? First of all, look what it says after that. Uh, Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, deal with the anger quickly. 
We're going to see Jesus say the same thing here in just a couple of more verses. But deal with anger quickly, urgently. Anger comes in a number of forms, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, anger is driven by uh, other things like frustration and fear and hurt and injustice. Those things bring anger to the top. And when anger comes, don't sin. Do what's right with your anger. Reconcile with your anger. Not with your anger, but with the one who you're angry with or who is angry with you. So he's saying, be angry and do not sin. How do we do that? Deal with it quickly. And give no opportunity to the devil by dealing with it quickly and not sinning in your anger. One way we can sin in our anger is kill somebody. Don't do that, okay? I'm a sucker for pointing out the obvious, okay? Don't do that. But he says here, and I think this is so important. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let the devil have a foothold. When I was playing football, every once in a while something would happen. We would grab hold of somebody and they would slip away and we'd only have a foot. All right? You ever see that and maybe... You played football and you had that kind of tackle. You know you ended up just sliding down them. And all you had at the end of the day was a foot. And you were holding on to that foot for dear life. All right? You're not going anywhere. What's that dude doing? I played running back when I was younger too. And I tell you, that happened to me. And do you know what it was like? That's just like that. That's a foothold. It's not a rock in the cliff that you can get a toe in. It's a hindrance that Satan actively works to hold you back. That's what happens when anger festers. When it builds up. Deal with anger quickly. Don't let it fester into bitterness that's useful in the hands of the devil. He will use it. He will take opportunity. Rick, when's anger sin? Can I give you a few things here? Uh, let me give you five. I just shaved that by one. You're welcome. When is anger sin? When anger is without cause. When you have no real reason to be angry. When you have imagined an offense. Anger is sinful. Doesn't that happen all the time? Maybe, you know, someone that you love, something, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, and they're quiet or they're loud or something like that. Say, hey, you mad about something? No, 
I'm going to take you at your word. Later on, you find out that wasn't true. Yeah, they were mad. What are you mad about? What I do? You didn't do anything. You find out later. Anger without cause. I don't know if it's true for you, but can I have an honest moment here for a moment, for just a, just a second? Most of the anger that I find in me is anger at me. Anger at myself, usually. Anger at yourself shouldn't be thrown out at someone else. It should be reconciled with God. Secondly, anger that is disproportionate to the offense. I was looking up some of those euphemisms this morning. There was one of them. I won't be quite as graphic as they were. You don't stop that. I'm going to rip your arm off and beat you with it. My dad never said that one to me. He had some good ones. That would be disproportionate to the offense. Of tapping on the table. I have to be careful with that. Disproportionate to the offense. Or anger that is out of control is sinful. Anger that is out of control. I remember we hadn't been married long. I know that we hadn't been married long because we lived in a little duplex in Shreveport uh, on Stevenson Street. And I had cranked up the car and was going. It was cold that day. And my car, I didn't let it warm up very long, and I backed out and I began to go, and it died. And I'd been having some carburetor trouble. That's back when they had carburetors on cars. Uh, and I'd been having some carburetor trouble, so I got under there and I started doing some things that still wouldn't crank. I got it, it would not crank, and I was so mad. And I took my foot and I kicked the side of the car, all right? I wasn't thinking that that would cause a problem, but it did cause a problem. It caused a dent about that wide and about that long in my front fender. I was out of control in terms of my anger. I was hot. I was mad. Anger that is out of control is sinful anger. Man, y'all ever doing something and you know you ought to be able to do it and you can't get it to stay together and you're trying to get the screwdriver on it, and you can't figure out how to put it together, and it falls apart for about the tenth time, and you take the screwdriver and you give it a chunk like that across the yard into the neighbor's yard, and it falls off in there, and you don't want to go into your neighbor's yard because then you've got to explain to them why you threw your screwdriver into their yard. It's that frustration in men of the things we know we ought to be able to do, but we can't do. Usually because nobody taught us to do it. It's out of control. Anger that is out of control is sinful anger. Anger that has no relationship to the holiness of God. The anger of man 
does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger that is not moving toward bringing holiness of God to bear in a circumstance is sinful anger. And then lastly, anger that festers. It festers into bitterness. We're to put away all bitterness, all clamor, all anger, all those things, and we're to forgive one another. And that's what I want to talk about in the last moments. That is being one who forgives and being one who seeks the forgiveness of others that we have offended. Jesus is dealing with all that right here. When he's talking about uh, you've heard it said but I say this your anger at your brother is enough to get you thrown into hell. Because your anger at your brother is right on par with being a murderer. And those who are believers do not continue in that way. So he lays out two illustrations of reconciliation. It's true that when someone sins against us, instead of anger, there should be forgiveness. But it's also true that if we bring harm to someone else, when we sin against another, we also should forgive. So he says in verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. These two illustrations turn a corner from diffusing our own anger to diffusing the anger of others. Oftentimes, we have the opportunity to do that. The proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Doesn't always, but in principle it does. That implies that we have some role in helping diffuse the anger of others. In fact, that's what Jesus is saying here. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go to your brother. Deal with broken relationships when you are at fault. I think it's important for me to point out something, that there's an assumption here that someone has a legitimate offense against you. They have a legitimate offense against you. A legitimate reason to be angry with you. I was trying to think as I was preparing this. It's kind of like, well, I want to kind of illustrate that. You know, what would be legitimate? What would be illegitimate? Well, certainly legitimate would be that if you stole something from someone, it would be legitimate that they would be angry with you about it. But if you spoke truth to them lovingly, it 
it wouldn't be legitimate for them to be angry with you about it. I remember several years ago um, preaching a sermon on the importance of discipleship and growing as disciples. Y'all know as well as I do, the Word of God teaches throughout consistently and constantly that we are to grow up into maturity. We are to be disciples. We are to be continuously being discipled and pursuing knowing God more. And I preached one, it was a Sunday night, I believe is what it was, if I remember correctly, and I said these words. I said, if you are not pursuing being a disciple of Jesus in your heart, if reading the Bible and prayer and confession, these things mean nothing to you, you need to consider whether you are in the household of faith, whether you are a child of God. Because Jesus said, you know how you know who they are? You can tell by the fruitfulness of their life that they love the body of Christ. Man, I had a guy, I hadn't seen him for a few weeks, and I was told, hey, you probably ought to give him a call. He's mad at you. So I called. They didn't tell me why I called. He said, well, you remember saying this? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I, I was really offended by that. I don't, I don't think that's right. And I said, based on what passage? Well, I just, you know, I just don't think it's right. I said, okay, but based on what passage? And then I started talking to all the passages that speak of our responsibility to be disciples, to walk as disciples, to live as disciples. And that it's the fruitfulness of the disciples' life to become more and more like Jesus. I didn't owe him an apology, and I didn't give him one. I encouraged him to grow as a disciple. And he left our church. That was illegitimate anger. I spoke the truth. I did it in love. I know it's hard to imagine someone as blunt as me doing something gently. But when someone is offended by me, I do gentle it up a bit. We're to deal with broken relationships where you are at fault, where you legitimately have done something to hurt or some injustice. Or somehow caused fear. Somehow angered someone. The urgency of this is stated as, someone, as if someone is angry at you. Skip church and go reconcile with them. Okay? Take that softly, okay? I don't want to come back next Sunday and we've got ten people out here. And everybody says, well, Brother Rick, I had somebody that had something against me. Yet six other days, Okay? What he's highlighting here is he's highlighting the urgency of forgiveness. The urgency of seeking that reconciliation. But also I think it is pointing to 
Don't bring anger in your heart or knowledge uh, that you have sinned against a brother to worship and think all will be well. Well, I'll go to church this Sunday. Everything will be okay. That works for the Catholic Church. It doesn't work for us. All right? We actually think you have a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ, and he calls for your heart to be in purity. And this horizontal relationship that we have with one another is important, and it's necessary as believers to forgive those who injure us. It's who we are. The second illustration comes in verse 25. Come to term quickly. Terms quickly with your accuser. Wow. I'm sorry. While you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. And the judge to the guard. And you be put in prison. Truly I say to you. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Pursue reconciliation. He's saying. Before it's too late. Pursue it before it's too late. Ignoring someone else's anger at you will fester in them. And they'll do something like this. It'll fester. If you know you have sinned against someone, whether in word or in deed, And they have something against you. Go reconcile with them. Seek their forgiveness. If it's a legitimate, seek their forgiveness. Do it before it's too late. Do it and be reconciled with your brother. And all for one last thing. Pursue reconciliation with God. Some of you may have come up in your mind today as I've talked about this, someone that you have something against. They've wronged you in some way. And you've been angry, perhaps for days, weeks, months, years, decades. I use all those terms because I've dealt with all those circumstances. Unforgiveness for decades. How can you imagine that your worship is true if you will not forgive your brother? As 1 John 3.15 does tell us, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. Call on the Lord and be saved. And let him bring reconciliation to your own heart. And therefore reconciliation will be poured out all around you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the words 
that you have given us so that we can walk and live in the righteousness that Christ has worked in our hearts through his own blood, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would not harbor bitterness in our heart and that we would be quick to forgive. And Father, that we would be a people that long to pursue your holiness. Lord, help us to accept the reality that because we are yours, and because we believe certain things, and because we walk in certain ways, some people will hate us. And some people will be angry with us because of our faith, our belief, and our practice. But God, let us stand firmly, boldly, faithfully, confidently on the word of truth. And Father, let us live it always. Father, I pray that you would help us to forgive just as you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.